0: Hey, how many of you know this? That you can go to Walmart now, online. Order your groceries online. Pull up and call them, and they bring your groceries out to you. Anybody know that? Amen. Wow, we we got charismatic over that one. I love it. Um, there are so many things about life that are downloadable. You can bank almost exclusively, you can bank exclusively online. There are people who bank who have no physical bank that they actually go to. I was comparing interest rates and things like that, and I thought, I may have to switch, because that bank that doesn't really exist except on the internet gets better interest rates than my bank that I've been going to for a long time. There's a challenge though when we talk about downloadability. It certainly makes life convenient. You know, I have have 150 Bible translations on my phone, you know, so if I go to India or go to Mexico, I could download a Bible in the native, that's crazy to have that kind of accessibility. The, the thing about the church that I, that I love and is so distinct um, is that, um, that this is not a downloadable experience. You cannot download community. You can't download community. So when we have the opportunity to shake hands and pat each other on the back and give each other a hug or a fist bump, um, that's not something your 7,000 friends on Facebook can do for you. Which, to call them friends, is um, by all stretches of the imagination a rather generous uh, title for those people. Um, They don't really, except with maybe some emojis, have the opportunity to celebrate things in life with you and to weep over things in life with you. And so one one of the sweetnesses and I say this because our message really deals with, with this, is just understanding the preciousness of fellowship, is that um, the opportunity we have as church, church membership, not church attendance, church membership, is a lot like marriage. It is for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. There's just this give and take to it. Um, today, just some things that are kind of cool about our church. We have a, a couple that today is their 62nd wedding anniversary. That's cool. Pamela Anderson? Pamela Anderson? Baywatch, uh, Baywatch. Wow. <laughs> Baywatch got married two weeks ago, and after 12 days, I saw this on the front of Fox News this morning, got divorced yesterday. So when you hear that someone's been married 62 years of faithful, devoted love, and you see a Hollywood icon who is married for 12 days, which model do you think you want to aspire to? Oh, there's no question. So if you don't know David and Vivian Fickling, you need to. And you can Facebook stalk them or do whatever, although that, that probably ain't going to help you, you know. Um, but there are people in our church that you need to know. And uh, what an awesome thing. I, I appreciate it. I told him this morning, I said, thank you for setting such a faithful example to a young snapper like me. So I hope I can get there someday. On the other hand, uh, some of you know Butch Smith. Butch Smith has, like, locked down our two-year-old Sunday school classroom for years. Um, Butch has had a history of heart problems. And he's been in the hospital for over a week he has had uh, 11 stints and uh, had three put in thursday and he's having some problems with uh, the electrical stimulation of his heart so he is still in the hospital had had an incident yesterday and uh, they uh, are thinking maybe today or tomorrow they're going to put a uh, defibrillator in and so for a man who looks to be fit who's had so many just tremendous challenges with his heart and uh, now is facing kind of another another challenge. They have gotten the blood flow working. Now they need to get the electrical current kind of moving in the same direction. And so um, we need to pray for Butch. You know, we need to thank God for faithful examples. And uh, we need to pray and kind of wrap our arms in prayer around the uh, Smith family. You can't download that. That's part of being part of the faith family. So would you uh, join me in a word of prayer, please? Father, what a privilege to call you our Father. To know that you care. To know that you You desire to resource and provide us richly with everything that we need, not just to survive life, but to enjoy life. You have given us uh, joy, and you have asked that you you want our joy to be full for our cup to overflow. And so, Father, with with just grateful hearts, uh, we thank you not just for um, the ability to um, simply persevere for 62 years, but for a couple that loves each other and is preciously devoted father we pray that you would help all of us to aspire to that Uh, not simply to win the accolade of uh, human praise but to glorify you because we believe that you are a faithful god and we thank you for how the fickling's marriage emulates that when we hear of hollywood marriages that show unfaithfulness father we don't want that at the same time uh, we pray for the smith family as they go through these challenges that even at this moment that they will know Uh, That their church is uh, united in prayer at this moment, lifting them up and asking for your mercy in this difficult time. There are certainly others who have faced challenges this week that when we gathered last week, we're not expecting what they have had to deal with this week. We pray for your grace. We pray that you help us to operate in those circumstances in a way that glorifies you. Uh, Give us patience. Give us grace. Give us the things that we need to meet the challenges uh, that are ahead of us. Father, for today in our time together, I pray that you will help the inadequacy of this messenger to communicate the glorious truths of your word. Uh, It is just so hard to be the bottleneck through which this communication comes, and I am very much aware of my inadequacies to communicate your truth um, with the right passion, with the right clarity. So, Father, I just ask for your help this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We're starting a new sermon series called Not Ashamed, looking at 2 Timothy. And uh, when we talk about the concept of shame, um, this is a rhetorical question, so don't raise your hand. Don't out yourself. Have you ever felt ashamed of something? Now, chances are, if you're under 30, probably not. Because if you watch how people dress when they go to Walmart, it's proof that people have no shame. Um, Pajama pants are made for your house, not for for Walmart or McDonald's or anything like that. If you... uh, (laughs) Yeah, okay, boomer. Um, so, you, uh, if you go to the beach, listen, I, I don't want to go to the beach anymore because it's proof that people have no shame. Um, there are people, so uh, lady that I mentioned earlier, married I don't know how many times, five or six times, no shame. She still has a lot of life left. She could get another six marriages in before, you know, her time's up. There's no shame. And so the challenge is shame is a disappearing virtue. Um, and as Christians, shame is a little bit of a bad word, but we, we know that the Bible defines humanity definitively. For all have sinned. The all means me and all y'all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There are things that we are ashamed of, um, you know you sit there and you go if we could show a little video in everybody's life the most embarrassing or shameful moment played do you know what that moment would be for you Ooh. you hope it's like a, a really old camera you know and really gritty so they go hey is that scott no that's manny yeah, yeah, yeah it's manny you know it's not me it's not me yeah same height <laughs> and we're both wearing purple shirts you know so um oh you think about that like there's there are things for which we, you know, we know, knew the right thing to do, didn't do it, or thought we knew the right thing to do and it proved to be just terrible. Um, shame, shame's a, a reality. Sometimes there are circumstances that you can't avoid that are really embarrassing. You feel some shame. You, you could not avoid it. Um, it's just, it's, it's something that happens. Sometimes for Christians, when we encounter suffering, we kind of feel like a little bit of an outcast. And there is, uh, there is Christian heresy out there that says, or pseudo-Christian teaching that says, if you have enough faith, everything's going to turn up just right for you. You're not going to get sick, you're not going to get cancer, you know, nothing bad's going to happen if you just gave enough money, you know, demonstrate enough faith. Listen, um, God doesn't save us by the zeros that we put behind our gift, God saves us through Christ by grace alone, not anything that we can do. And yet, sometimes when situations happen that we don't have control about, that are not favorable, we feel shame. Here's the challenge. The Bible's also very clear that suffering is a part of life. Like, what do you do to avoid suffering? It's coming. It might be big suffering. It might be little suffering. But suffering of some variety, and your personality may determine how you deal with that. Suffering is a part. And so suffering is not something to be ashamed of, and it's not something to be avoided. It's something that we can even do, even that, for the glory of God. You can suffer For the glory of God. So here's where we find ourselves, in 2 Timothy. main theme of 2 Timothy is not being ashamed. And the challenge is the Apostle Paul finds himself in a very different situation than he does in 1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy, he's at the prime of his game. He is traveling, he's writing books of the Bible, he's planting churches, everything is good. He's recruiting people to his team. They're they're growing and expanding. In 2 Timothy, he's alone in a uh, disease-filled prison and uh, his execution warrant has been signed. He's just waiting for them to pull his number. It's over. Chapter 4, he even says, uh, I am even now being poured out. If If my soul is a liquid, the pitcher is tipped. It's just not tipped all the way out, and I'm not poured out. And he says, yet, I'm not ashamed. I have run the race. I have fought the fight. I have finished the course. I'm ready. I am not ashamed of suffering, being a prisoner, um, and so, in 2 Timothy, we have, uh, in one sense, maybe, Paul's last will and testament, his last words, uh, written to his, his protege, and he says, man, don't fear suffering, persevere, don't be ashamed of the trials and the adversities that come your way, persevere, because, young man, you're going to fill my shoes, wow, like, how would you like an apostle to say that to you, that's uh, crazy, I love the way John Calvin says this. John Calvin says that Paul, Paul didn't write this letter with ink from a pen. He wrote it with his own life's blood. Paul wrote 2 Timothy, very personal, with his own blood to this young man that he loved. And so we're going to uh, begin this today by just looking at the first five verses of uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1. And um, we'll read them, and then we'll kind of go, huh, all right, what in the world do we get out of an introduction to an epistle? What, what is there for us to feed on, feed our souls on? What is, what is there here in this to challenge us? And I think there's, there's three things. If, you have, if you're following along on the app or you're following along on your worship guide, you'll see three simple points and uh, a couple sub-points under our second point. But we'll begin in, chapter, uh, in uh, chapter 1, verse 1. Here's what God's Word says. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> if you've ever looked at any of the New Testament letters, this is kind of the standard uh, epistle is a, a, the name for a letter. This is the standard epistolary form where you don't... Our letters at the end, we sign, you know, Love, Scott, Sincerely, Scott, you know, uh, whatever. New Testament letters you sign at the very beginning. And so Paul uh, starts by, um, very formally, in very, in, in, with very lofty language, describing himself, Paul... In case you don't know who I am, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. Now here's the thing that's really strange. 2 Timothy is written on a very personal level. When we get to verse 2 in just a few minutes, you see that the tone changes dramatically. Verse 1, he gets all the formality out of the way. He says, I am I am Paul, and here's who I am. I'm an apostle. uh, God chose this for me. This was not my original life plan. He rerouted me, he changed my career. And my whole purpose for existing is to be a herald of the life, to announce the life that's in Christ. I'm an ambassador for the gospel. And so he identifies himself formally, not because Timothy doesn't know who he is, but because although this letter is written expressly and specifically for Timothy's benefit, it is also designed to be read publicly to the church at Ephesus. So if the church at Ephesus wonders, all right, what is this letter that Timothy is reading? It's Paul, uh, an ambassador of Christ Jesus, an apostle, a sent one, who is an apostle by the will of God uh, for the purpose of proclaiming the promise of life in Christ. That's pretty serious. So, here's what's happening in verse 1, Paul is reflecting upon the Lord's special calling of all His people, Now he's talking specifically about his calling to be an apostle. But as he reflects upon this and puts it into a letter for Timothy and for the church, he is not just bragging on his special ambassadorship. He is reflecting upon the Lord's special calling of his people. Because, friends, Paul is not the only one called. Timothy is called. Even though Timothy's not an apostle, the church at Ephesus is called. All Christians are Called He is, uh, as he is doling out this information about his calling and the encouragement that he hopes to unfold to Timothy and to the church, he is thinking about his calling and by extension encouraging Timothy, the church at Ephesus, and us to think about our calling too. There's several things that we can say God calls us to. This is, this is, this is free. Amanda, you were in the first service, so this wasn't there. But I remember this is a sermon, I think I was in sixth grade, and it was a Sunday night sermon, so my pastor didn't wear a tie, which meant it was a little less serious. But it stuck with me. Sixth grade, and here I am, uh, 45 years old, and I still remember it. He, he called it the three S's of the Christian life. He so said, there are three things that God calls us to. He calls us to, number one, salvation. He calls us to, number two, sanctification. He calls us to, number three, service. Hmm, that's a pretty good message. He calls us to be saved, to become his children. He calls us to, to reflect him in our moral character. He calls us to serve him. Um, in, in a variety of different ways. And so when Paul is talking about calling, he's saying, listen, a, a lot of times when we use the word calling, we think of ministerial vacancies. We need to call an associate pastor. We need to call a pastor. We need to call this. Um, that's true. The word calling does apply to that. That's an appropriate thing. The problem is if we, if we make that just the um, property of a very select, small group of people, we misunderstand it. And here's, here's, here's where I'm going with this. Um, We have lost the language of calling, yet we use the language of calling every day. Um, If you have ever heard of um, vocational rehab or vocational benefits or vocational college, the word vocation comes from the Latin vocare, which means to call, which means everybody has a job, but not everybody really understands what their calling is. Does Does that make sense? There is a difference between merely existing and taking whatever job you can find and identifying your calling. The Bible is very clear that everyone has a calling. Now, this calling fleshes itself out in a variety of ways. It is spiritual. Listen to these words. Uh, the word calling in the New Testament is fabulous. It is a rich buffet of truths. 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You were called, as a Christian, into fellowship with Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 6.12, take hold, hug it up, grab it, hold it tight, the eternal life to which you were called. You're called to eternal life. Um, Ephesians 1.18, uh, walk in the hope to which He has called you. Ephesians 4.1, walk in a manner worthy of the Calling with which you were called, so there's all kinds of uh, very rich uh, dimensions of understanding this calling. Spiritually, we are called to be God's children, and yet, for today's purposes, um, two things that I think are really important for us to understand when we talk about calling: our calling is not just to be God's children. How How does that? That's maybe destination. How does this flesh out in our everyday life? Well, because we are God's children, our calling fleshes itself out both in ethics and in vocation. So our calling is both ethical and vocational. In Ephesians 4.1, when it says, you know, walk in a manner worthy of the calling. If you call yourself a Christian, that means there are some things that are now out of bounds. You are trespassing to do this because God owns you. He he paid Christ's blood to redeem you. Um, So there are ways that we live in a way to please Him, not just to please ourselves. And so there's an ethical dimension to our calling. Uh, Every Christian is called to walk by the Spirit, not by the flesh. Every Christian is called to set our eyes on the things above, not the things that are here below. Every Christian has an ethical calling on their life. So if, kids too, especially, listen to me this, If, if you stumble with your mouth, Part of god's ethical calling for you is to clean it up now i don't necessarily mean that you're using foul language maybe you maybe you're just a little too snippy with your friends maybe your 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 language cuts maybe you're always like being funny at other people's expense i mean, it hurts maybe you talk back to your parents um the bible will call that foolishness it should be eradicated from your life um big kids you know it, it applies to us too you, we have no idea. I wish sometimes that it could be like a, our life could be like a war movie. We could be like MASH, the old, you know, 60s and 70s show. And I, I wish that you could see the damage that your words do. I mean, we would be walking in and it would look like a triage unit of, of, of words that we didn't say, that people needed to hear, affirmation and encouragement, and then wounds that we have inflicted with our careless words. I guarantee there would be nobody that came here without some kind of bandage on. Some people would be on life support because we're just not taking the ethical calling in our life seriously. It is also vocational. Guys, listen, I can say this. Whatever you do, whether you're in professional ministry or not, God has a calling for your life. And the the, the great challenge, especially for our young people, is to figure out what that is. It could be a a variety of different things. How do we figure out not just what do I want to do, what does God want me to do? How, did he, how am I wired to uniquely contribute uh, the way that God wants me to? Uh, we're definitely called to live differently in this way that we live differently. affects everything that we do, even the jobs that we one day employ. It means we've got to figure out what our calling is because if you don't know what your calling is, it's going to be that much more difficult to glorify God fully. And so how in the world do we help people understand God's call vocationally? Again, it doesn't mean you're going into ministry uh, because your ministry can be wherever you work. I mean, that's the greatest challenge. If you think the only thing that matters spiritually is what you do for your church, man, you're missing out on 95% of the ministry that God has all around you, in your neighborhood and in your workplace. So there's, there's a really simple equation that I think helps us to figure out what our calling is vocationally. Now, it doesn't answer all the questions, and it's not like a magic eight ball, you know, is this the job for me? It is indubitably so. No, it, it doesn't give you that kind of clarity. But it helps to, helps to narrow the field a little bit. And it's two things. Ask yourself when it comes to your work, What's your greatest desire? What do you enjoy to do? What are you good at? And not just like what you think you're good at. If nobody else affirms what you think you're good at, that's called delusion. (laughs) But if other people say, man, you're really good at that. Bro, you need to really like check this out, man. This could be, this is a good thing for you. Here's the thing that's strange. People might affirm you in things that you don't like. Well, I don't. This happened to me. I don't want to go into ministry. Ministry boring. That was a mistake to say. Um, it is never boring. Um, it's not fun. Well, it's always fun. Oh, it's too easy. I want to do something hard. I ate those words a long time ago. Um, I didn't want to do it. And yet, people around me saw it, and I was like, heck no. I, it was right after the Persian Gulf War. I was going to be General, the next General Schwarzkopf. That's what I wanted to be, you know, and um, God had other plans. So ask yourself, what's your greatest desire? What do you enjoy to do? What are you good at? Second thing, ask, what's the world's greatest need? What's the world's greatest need? Because if your, if your greatest desire doesn't have anything to do with meeting a need, what kind of fulfillment are you going to have in what you do? Seriously. If there's no need, then maybe there's no need for your job. And so finding a way to serve uh, that meets practical needs in somewhere where that intersection between your desire, your abilities, your skills, in, in a need in the world, whether that's construction or medicine or education, somewhere where the, those things intersect in that general vicinity, you're going to find what your calling is. How God has gifted you a way that the, the world could use some help. And so Paul is simply here just reflecting on God's special calling of all of His people. Everybody has a calling. Number two, as we look at verses two through four, uh, this, is, this is, it's the meat, it's the most verses that we're looking at here this morning. But Paul is here not reflecting upon calling, he is rejoicing in the deep love that characterizes true Christian fellowship. He is ecstatic to think about the love that we get to share together as believers. <clears throat> Here's where it takes a turn, a turn from the kind of lofty, formal language, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, Verse two, to Timothy, my beloved child. Now, Paul didn't have any children. we know of. Um, Paul may have been married to a good Jewish lady and when, because Paul was a Pharisee. And in order to be a Pharisee, you had to be a man of upstanding in the community, which meant he was probably married. To which, when he was converted, his wife probably said, you've left the faith. I don't want anything to do with you. We don't know that. Um, I think it's likely that Paul had been a married man. And uh, maybe he was a young man. He was very zealous, had a lot of energy. Maybe they just hadn't had kids. When he says, Timothy, my beloved child, he means his child in the faith, his his understudy, a guy that he had invested in. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience. As I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. Paul is cold and alone, uh, locked in an infamous and uh, disease-ridden uh, prison. And yet, as he thinks about young Timothy, it just it brings a smile to his face. It, uh, we say this, it warms his heart. Um, that's true for Timothy. His situation looks shameful. Here, the apostle locked up in chains. He says, oh, don't worry about that. The gospel is not locked up. Like, I'm getting ready to die, and I'm not focused on myself. I'm focused on the gospel, and I'm focused on Timothy. And when I think of Timothy, oh, man, that kid, he's awesome. And you think about Paul and Timothy's relationship. When, when Paul met Timothy on his first missionary journey, Timothy became his travel partner. I don't know, have you ever traveled with someone that's not your family? Like, you ever gone on a business trip with somebody, that, like the guy in the cubicle over that has a weird laugh, you know? By the end of the trip, boy, that's really annoying, you know? Um, it, it's fun. Mission trips are an, a special delight. So um, Ed left. Um, we, were in, um, we were in Zambia several years ago, visiting the Petros when they were still there. And in Africa, a sign of affection, that was just a sign of affection. There was nothing... Uh, romantic involved. Uh, there was nothing of a uh, m- e- weird ethical dimension that we face here in the United States involved. But if men were good friends, they would hold hands. So everywhere we went, I tried to, grab- <laughs> I tried to hold his hand and he would, he would always look like a snake had bit him. He's like, <laughs> you know, and so we, we, have this, um, we, have this, we have this travel story where like uh, we'd just be walking along and he'd be looking. I'd be like, and he'd be like, stop it! <laughs> you know? Um, it was great. Um, David Nicholson and I had the chance to go to India. I don't even know how many, it was a long time ago. And uh, I had happily, been happily married for 20 years. And so uh, we made very clear to the um, hotel one room, two beds. I said, oh, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir. To which we get in and we find that there are two um, foundations but one mattress. So now, rats and roaches on the floor. I got to figure out what's going on. So, David, are you cold natured or hot natured? Oh, I'm freezing. You sleep under all the sheets, and I'll just sleep under the top one. Because I've been married for too long, I don't need hairy legs under a sheet with me. We're <laughs> done with all of that. And so, without, <laughs> and this is being recorded too, that's great. Um, without, without the travel companionship, guess what? There's just not many stories to tell. And so you wonder, what, what did Paul and Timothy share? I mean, I shared stories from two two-week trips, Oh, listen, that doesn't even hold a candle to what Timothy experienced with Paul. And there's this very special relationship. And I love the the way Paul talks about it, whether he's talking about his calling that we looked at in our first point or whether he's talking about a very special friendship, fellowship. Jesus is the center of all of it. It's amazing. In the first two verses, um, Jesus is mentioned three times. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, in Christ Jesus, our Lord, the foundation for everything in the Christian faith needs to be Jesus. And the problem is, in the media today, people think we're for all kinds of things except Jesus. We're for musical styles, or you have to wear a certain kind of clothes to be accepted. You know, we're, you know um, I had someone a long time ago tell me if I was wearing this when I preached, I was just giving a talk, I wasn't actually preaching, because preaching required a, a suit and a tie. I don't think Paul had a suit and a tie. We we get hung up on things. We get hung up on politics. We get hung up on ethics. Not that these things are not important. Hear me clearly. But none of those things are a substitute for Jesus Christ. And unfortunately, we have been pleased to allow the world to assert that other things beyond Jesus are what make Christians distinct. So now, there are other people who are Christians that we don't like Because we've segmented ourselves into so many special interest groups that the love that convinces everybody that we're disciples of Christ just doesn't exist. Maybe with my small group, but certainly not with you. You're not my small group. And yet Paul is talking about this special friendship that is focused on Christ that makes their fellowship sweeter. There are three things that he says about fellowship that I think are really helpful, and I'm going to speed up here because um, um, I, I I need to get moving here. Three things that he talks about that we see in verses 2 through 4. Number one, what makes fellowship fellowship is that Paul desires blessings for others, not for himself. He says, oh, Timothy, grace, mercy, and peace. I remember being in school, if we bought presents for kids in our class, like if I wanted to buy Joel a present and you were the class, the teacher would make me bring in a present for everybody. Well, Joel sits in front of me in, in the desk. I don't even know the people on the other side of the classroom. I don't want to buy them anything. I want to give him an Outback gift card, but now that I have to give everybody a gift, you're getting a lollipop. You're getting a dum-dum, you know, because now, now I can't give you what I want. But sometimes as kids, did you ever give gifts because you expected whoever you gave a gift to to gift you back? Are you really gifting someone, or are you really just kind of bartering you know, well, my gift was $10, and you gave me a stinking $5 gift. Boy, did I get ripped off. Um, here's the deal. Paul is not concerned. Paul does receive things from Timothy. But here, his sense of fellowship from his perspective is how can I bless others? And so Paul's not going, hey, Paul has grace, mercy, and peace from the Lord Jesus Christ too. But he's not asking for it. He's just saying, Timothy, I just want you to have this, this triple triple blessing. I love it. There are some people that doubt Pauline authorship because Paul always says, grace and peace, grace and peace, grace and peace, grace and peace, grace and peace. peace." He adds mercy here. And I think that's awesome. I think it proves that Paul wrote it because someone who was forging Paul would never have added mercy, which I think is just Paul just saying, listen, I want every gift that God can possibly, I want him to give you grace to pardon all your sins and to transform your life. I want him to give you mercy so that when you're tempted to think that he's not gracious, he is good to you in difficult circumstances and he's merciful. And the result of all this grace and mercy is that you experience peace. Like you have received so much grace and mercy that while the world is shaking, you're at peace because you know God is still on his throne. That's a pretty serious gift. Not just blessings for others and not for self, but he also talks about cru- tr- cru- true Christian fellowship requiring an other-centered prayer life. Everybody wants fellowship, and they demand it, but we're not focused on others the way that Paul is. He's asking for blessings for others, and he's saying, let's, let's pray for others. He says, I am, I'm remembering, um, reflecting on my own life as I'm, I'm about to be executed, and, and I, as I remember you, I'm praying for you night and day. Churches have all kinds of meetings that they call fellowship, and it usually has something to do with fried chicken. Um, As a matter of fact, there are some people that thought, you know, the Greek word for fellowship meant, you know, um, fried chicken. Um, Here's the challenge. Like, who do you have fellowship with? And this is kind of like a target. There's different kind of concentric circles. Could we say we have fellowship with everybody in the room? Could we say that? Yeah, maybe generically. But if we dial into what Paul's saying, perhaps the only people that you truly have fellowship with are the people that you are truly deeply and committedly praying for. Ooh, that hurts cuz you might not have fellowship with anybody. Here's a question. Cuz <laughs> someone'll say to you today, "Hey, man, praying for you. I'll pray for you this week." And then they will forget until they see you in the parking lot next Sunday and they go, "Oh, you know, hey, God help Dan. Hey, Dan prayed for you this week. You know, um, because we're human. We're, we're, we're sinful. We don't always prioritize things. Here's the question. Who is praying for you truly, deeply, and committedly? Anybody? They will lie to you and tell you they are. Is there anybody you know that you know that you know is praying for you truly, deeply, and committedly? Who are you praying for truly, deeply, and committedly? Because you may show up for the potluck. You may show up for the fellowship meal but you may actually not be in fellowship with another soul. Here's, here's the deal, I think, in the church today. I think that is the biggest sin that we're okay with. I'm tired of hearing people say, yeah, so I, you know, I've been here for 10 years, but I don't know so-and-so, or I don't know so-and-so. We have a particular, particular occupational hazard because we have two worship services. So it is entirely possible for you in the second service, not to know someone in the first service. That's not an excuse, that's a reality. Likewise, it's possible for somebody in the first service to not know or not care about anybody in the second service. That is not an excuse. That is an obstacle for you to obliterate. If there are people that you worship with that you don't know, I am going to tell you today, I think that is a sin. I think you are, whether you realize it or not, you are withholding fellowship from other people for whom Christ died. And if there's any place, uh, Cheers, the bar in Cheers is not the place where everybody should know your name. The church is the place where everybody should know your name. I mean, when you come walking into church, everyone should be like, Norm! Man, how you doing? Good to see you. And yet there are people that can come to church because everybody has a different personality. Some are more reserved, some are more laid back, some are more aggressive. There are some people that are content to come to church and not talk to anybody. And just sit in their pew. Man, that is not, that's not the richness of life that, that Christ came to give us. Uh, third thing that's characteristic of, of um, fellowship, uh, we see this in verse, in verse 4. True Christian fellowship expresses a longing for a true and joyous reciprocity. Reciprocity. It's a reciprocal relationship. Um, and here's what I mean. In verse 4, he alludes to Timothy's prayer uh, tears for Paul. He says, man, I'm I'm thinking of this, I'm remembering your tears, and I long to see you that I might be filled with joy. Here's what's what's great to think about this. So, Timothy is, Timothy's a nobody. Nobody knows who Timothy is. Everybody knows who Paul is. Paul is the big man on campus. Paul comes to town. He chooses Timothy to be his travel companion. It becomes very clear that from kind of an organizational standpoint, this is a one-way relationship. Paul has all this stuff that Timothy needs. Timothy is dependent upon Paul. Obviously, at their last meeting, Timothy thought it was the last time he would see Paul. Paul was going to be dead or gone. Timothy's in tears when he thinks about his mentor leaving. It is very, very clear how much Timothy needed Paul. But do you hear in this verse, in verse 4, Paul says, man, I'm, I'm moved by your love for me. And I, 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 man, Timothy, if you, if you travel quick, you might make it before the lottery's called for my head to be cut off. We might have one last time to, to, to share those stupid stories about getting shipwrecked in Malta, you know? I mean, they had some mission trip stories about me getting bit by the snake, you know, about all this kind of crazy stuff. And he goes, Paul needs Timothy too. There's a reciprocity to this that is just beautiful. Paul, self-sufficient, mature, veteran, experienced. Timothy, timid, dependent, not self-sufficient. They are completely opposite personalities, yet because of their shared experience of the gospel, knowing that they're both sinners saved by grace, they need each other. I, I don't have words to put into uh, expression how significant this is oh we know that timothy believes in paul to the point that he's moved to tears thinking that he's never going to see this guy again but paul do you hear the excitement and the anticipation and the perspective joy that they might be able to get together paul believes in timothy too despite the fact that he's about to die If I was on death row, I don't know that joy would be an adjective that would describe my life. I hope that it would be. And yet, despite this tall order of having joy in the face of your execution, he is filled with joy at one last execution. Paul is saying here, as I am praying to God and reflecting upon my life, I thank God for what he has done for me through you. And I hope that I have returned the favor. Do you have somebody that you love like that? Do you have somebody that loves you like that? Third and finally, Paul recognizes the importance of building a legacy of discipleship, a legacy of discipleship. We see this in verse 3. Paul says in verse 3 that he is, um, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors and my forefathers with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Verse 5, he says this, "Um, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Paul is talking about both of their heritages, and their heritages are different. Paul says, I, I'm, Paul's not bragging that he's sinless when he says that he serves God with a clear conscience. He is rather, I think, making a statement about being saved by faith, not by works. He says, I, I thought being a good Jew was what put me in good standing with God, but now that I have been converted, that I met Jesus on the road to Damascus, I stand firmly in the stream of my forefathers because his, grandmother and, uh, his mother and his grandmother didn't teach him. Christ, like Timothy's uh, mother and grandmother did. But Paul's saying, I was discipled by people that I've never met. Abraham uh, believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. I stand in that stream. Moses uh, sought to be a human savior for the people of God. Uh, as a precursor to Jesus being the savior of the people of God, Moses was looking, was looking ahead to a leader that was better than him. And I stand with a clear conscience like my forefathers did i was discipled by books to which he turns around he says but timothy you were discipled by your mom and your grandma our discipleship looks different but the goal is the same glorifying god paul doesn't say that there was a specific person in his life that led to his uh, spiritual development Uh, timothy did have that and that's not to say that families that um, there are people within our own congregation that are believers in spite of not because of their family That's good too. God uses all kinds of ways to pull people into his family. But he's acknowledging that there is a discipleship, whether it's people from the distant past that faithfully pointed the way forward that Paul followed, or whether it's people that are flesh and blood relationships that are passing on this special heritage to Timothy. They're both good. And and he's doing something really important here. Paul is reflecting upon the past, both his and Timothy's, to substantiate the present. He goes, Timothy, I know your mom and your grandma and I know what they taught you and I know that it's in you now. He's reflecting upon the past to substantiate the present. Timothy, I know you're good. You're inexperienced, you're young, you're shy, you're bashful, but you are the real deal. And he's using the past to substantiate the present to propel them into a faithful future. If you have received the gospel, pass it on. Disciple others. others. Do for others what maybe wasn't done for you. And so in conclusion, just a couple of questions here this morning to stimulate how do we respond uh, to to this idea of being bold for God, bold in our calling, bold in our love, bold in our legacy. Are you ashamed of your calling? Are you ashamed of your calling? A Palmetto Women's Center last week took um, a bunch of high school students to the March for Life. Uh, to which my, my daughter was one of them. Um, several of the students were just really encouraged by their time there and um, hearing about things that God is doing around our country related to the pro-life movement. So one of the teenage girls, not my daughter, a friend of my daughter's, um, is um, on Facebook saying some stuff about the experience and how much it's really changed her perspective on um, life. So the entire drive home from D.C., guess what happens to her? On Facebook, all of her friends systematically defriend her. Because if you're going to talk about that kind of junk, I just don't want it anymore. Now, you could take your convictions and you can sit on them. Are they really convictions at that point? She is paying a price because she's understanding her calling. When you were in school, it's likely it didn't cost you anything to be a believer. But now, if you're not the girl that, that puts out or the guy that gets drunk every weekend, there's a cost associated with that. You're, you're a prude. Uh, if you're not into all the stuff that the world says you need to be involved in, man, there is a price to pay for our young people that you didn't have to face because the, the ethical standard has morphed and changed just a little bit. Um, are you ashamed of your calling? Are your kids, your grandkids, embarrassed to admit publicly that they're a believer? They might be, and I don't say that as a shameful thing. I say that because we have a responsibility to encourage them and help them learn how to stand. Boldly for God. Are you ashamed to give or receive love? Paul, you know, this man's man, says, man, I long, I long for you to be here, Timothy. I don't have much time left, man. I I hope we get it. Timothy is known for his tears. That That doesn't score you a bigger man card, you know, when you admit that. But yet here's these two godly men who are admitting this love that they have for each other. And so, listen, here's a challenge for you. The Bible says, if you love your friends who are just going to love you back, what good is that? Every single one of you, every single one of you, with maybe precious few exceptions, is a part of a clique. Do you know that? It's human nature. Can't avoid that. I don't say this in a condemnatory way. You have a clique. And if you don't know what it is, ask someone else and they'll tell you what your clique is. Happens. Birds of a feather flock together. So if you only love the people in your clique, how does that look like Jesus? Here's here's your mission should you choose to accept it. Is there someone at this church that you don't know? Now listen, if you're visiting, boy, did I just intimidate you because you don't know anybody. Okay? So here's the deal. Church members, it's your responsibility. You are the host. This is your church. They're visiting. They're our guests. Get to know them. Not in like an annoying, uh, overactive, chill out, okay? But don't be so chill that they don't think that you love them and care for them. Find that right balance where you're engaging and loving, but not too much to scare them away. People need to feel loved. Listen, there may be people in the first service that you don't know, and quite honestly, you don't care to get to know. Man, ask God to change that. That's a really practical homework assignment. Meet somebody that you don't know that worships at the same church that you do. I think you can do it. I believe in you. It just requires a little bit of an initiative. Are you ashamed of your legacy? When you die and it's done, who else will be on the path behind you? Anybody? When we talk about a legacy of discipleship, Are you passing on what God has preciously entrusted to you? And if you have questions about that, if you have doubts about that, I'm pretty sure that that probably means that you're not exerting yourself the way that you probably could. Here's what's great. Jesus' return or your funeral may be a long way off. You've got time to change that. You've got time to leave a legacy of discipleship and be able to be like Paul and say, my life's being poured out. And I have run the race, I have fought the fight, I have finished the course. That's a man that was not ashamed to love. He was not ashamed of his calling and he was not ashamed of his legacy because God had empowered him to do what God had called him to do. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you for this word, uh, an introductory word. As we start to jump into 2 Timothy, we think about the end of Paul's life and the encouragement that he gives to Timothy to persevere, to, to, to be the next generation leader. Uh, that God had called him to be. And so, Father, as we think about this, help us to find that right balance of humility and boldness, that we're not so full of ourselves that we force ourselves upon others, but that we have a spirit-empowered gentleness but not ashamed mentality that is just glad to be on fire for our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to burn bright for you, Lord Jesus.